Hey, and welcome to the Dallas and Austin show. Thanks for popping by, taking a listen to the podcast. Welcome to episode one of the podcast of the series. Uh, we're new to this. We we just thank you for taking a peek, hearing us out, uh, taking a listen, and let us know in the comment section uh, or on our Instagrams what you think, what, what we should talk about in future episodes. Uh, it was a great first conversation that we had. Uh, really enjoyed our time recording this, and I hope you enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. Welcome to our podcast. I got Dallas with me. Dallas, say hello. Hello. Um, we are talking about the book, The Sin of Certainty, which is written by Peter Enns. Uh, I had never heard of the guy. Dallas, you gifted me this book. I did. Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually, I, I enjoyed it. I was, when I first started reading it, I was actually nervous about it. I was like, yeah, I don't know if I agree. Well, nervous is a strong word. I was just like that is a strong word. Skeptical. I don't get nervous while reading <laughs> books. Just straight butt. I don't know if I'm going to agree with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> just sweating. Sarah walks in. Yeah. She's like, "Awesome, are you freaking out?" And I'm like, "Guess this book. I'm not sure. It's the first chapter." Um, <laughs> but no, it's a, it's actually a really interesting book. Um, yesterday when I was reading it, it I mean, it's quick read. But yesterday is, when I was yeah. reading it, I was sitting in Starbucks. And some dude sat right down next to me and he's like, oh, what's the book about? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I only have so much time. I know we're recording this podcast today. Leave me alone. Just call him on. Yeah. You're like, actually, we're talking about it tomorrow morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did tell him. I was like, me and my buddy are doing a podcast. That's why I'm reading this. But mm. uh, he asked me what it's about. And basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dallas, but I would say mm. the book is very much about... I think it's written to Christians. It's written to people that have had a form of crisis of faith, doubt, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And it it's really just saying, it, Peter Enns really pushes against the idea that you have to have all the answers, that it's okay to be uncertain and to sit in that uncertainty. Yeah, I think like a, a move from I have to have the right beliefs to I'm going to trust God, even if I don't. I'm just going to have the trust. Mm-hmm. So I was explaining it to the guy and then he ended up pitching me his pyramid scheme. So <laughs> I was like, well, this was a great that intro of question of what's the book about. He wasn't really, he wasn't really interested. Yeah. Well, I couldn't believe it. He, he talked to me for like 30 minutes before he finally pitched it. And uh, <laughs> I was talking to Sarah about it. I'm like, you know what? This, this dude, like after looking like, analyzing the conversation afterwards it was very much like oh what do you do oh i was a pastor i'm now working at this church and he's like oh okay is that long term i'm like yeah it, we'll see and then he turned to sarah he's like what do you do and he's like oh yeah teachers make nothing mm. and then he's talking about how his business is doing really well and i was like okay he's just kind of leaving it open what's your business and then yeah, pyramid yeah, scheme yeah. bitch so it was actually an- annoying <laughs> was it a real pyramid scheme like scheme like no you- find three people and you're one of my three people he didn't he didn't say that but he sells a product and then he wanted to meet with me on a like a weekly basis so that he could teach me how to build my own business and oh okay i was like dude 
you sell vitamins like that. <laughs> there's you're not wow. yeah so i didn't that's so classic it is classic <laughs> as soon as he said it like i, I always look at these situations because this dude sits down and asks me about the book and i'm like okay is this a guy that god has placed in front of me and then he i was like oh immediately like i'm a christian <laughs> is what i said and he's like oh me too i'm like oh okay you weren't sent by God. I don't want to talk to you. You're already a Christian. <laughs> this is a waste of my time. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy that uh -huh. you're a Christian, but like, we don't need to talk. I'm anyways. Um, and then he pitched his pyramid scheme. I'm like, you're definitely not sent by God. You're sent by the devil. Yeah. You're sent by yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was, at least it gave me the opportunity to try to explain what the book was about before I am now on here trying to explain yeah, what the book true. is about. That's true. But um, yeah, I mean, first thoughts on it, as I said, a little nervous starting out. And I think the reason why is because he immediately was pushing back about having answers. And mm -hmm. what I told this pyramid scheme dude before I realized mm -hmm. he was a pyramid scheme dude was, mm -hmm. you know what? I wouldn't recommend this book to everyone because I think some people sit in ignorance and would read this book and be affirmed in sitting in their ignorance, which is a problem. Do you know what I'm saying? That's interesting. Like there are some people that are Christians. They don't really yeah. have a deep faith in the sense that they've looked for answers. And so they would read this and be like, oh, so I don't even have to have any answers. Sweet. And I think that would create a lazy Christian lazy yeah but maybe not faithless christian but i i suppose you're right that's an interesting point can can you have true faith without really knowing what you believe i think so i think so hmm because i don't if i read the gospels i don't see jesus doing a lot of like doctrinal sorry teaching. sorry if you read the Gospels, wow. <laughs> like when I read the when Gospels. When yeah. I'm reading the Gospels, I suppose. <laughs> if, I, if you go to the Gospels. But um, when you read the Gospels, you don't see Jesus doing a lot of doctrinal teaching. Part of that is because he's mostly talking to Jews who have a lot of like the same framework as him. But, you know, you don't see like massive letters in Paul. Or like you get in Paul, where Jesus is really concerned about the faith of the people he's healing. A lot of people just came to him because they heard he can heal and had faith in it. And he did. And said, oh, you have great faith. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great point, actually. Like when you consider what it, like what kind of level of faith you have to have, the Gospels is the best mm -hmm. place to go for that. Because there would have been people that encountered Jesus once and then died would have had that amount of faith and understanding and still would have been saved sure or even the the centurion who if he's a roman citizen doesn't have anything like doesn't believe in well we don't know but probably doesn't have the jewish framework for the world probably doesn't you know know a lot about the messiah or anything like that just goes to jesus and says i need you to heal my slave i think and he mm -hmm. does yeah yeah it was interesting how uh 
in this book, Peter really pushed against the word believe. I think his mm-hmm. I think his exact statement was basically, um, if I was the Pope, I would ban the word believe from the Bible and replace <laughs> it with trust. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or I don't think he said the Pope, but he said like something. It was very close. Yeah, yeah, it was like that. And I, I was talking to Sarah about that. I'm like, you know what? I guess there is definitely like a validity to that conversation because we typically will say we believe, which means head knowledge, but mm-hmm. trust is more that faith. And I, I don't like the chair analogy. Like, oh, you're all sitting in something right now, right? Like every listener is either sitting or standing yeah. on something and we're not even thinking twice about whether it'll hold us up, which is like, a great point it's very um childlike typically when you hear it but at the mm-hmm. same time that's our expectation of god is when something bad happens it's it's not even like we shouldn't think twice about whether he'll show up he'll show up it might not be the way that we want him to show up so i thought that was an interesting point yeah okay have you heard the analogy like it doesn't matter how much faith you have it just matters where the faith is I don't... Is that an analogy? Well, that is not an analogy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think they use it with the chair analogy. <laughs> I think that's a quote. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it doesn't matter how much you, faith you have in the chair as long as you sit down. You know, as long as you have enough to sit down. Right. Where I think he, he would push back on that idea and say, you can you can have the right beliefs or what you think are the right beliefs and only trust them a little. And when things happen in your life, that's not really going to help. Mm-hmm. Like your trust is either going to have to strengthen or you're going to lose it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, mm-hmm. you, you're saying that's what Peter would say. Yeah. 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 I'm putting words in his mouth without ever having met him. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Um, but when, yeah, I the thing that I really struggled with while reading the book, though, was the whole idea of not looking for answers. And he like he kept saying, I'm not saying like it's bad to look for answers and mm-hmm. and you just shouldn't be always certain in it. And I loved how he talked about like doubt and how doubt pushes you into a deeper faith and things like that, which we can get into in a bit. But at the same time, like it really, as he, as he continued his book, I just got more affirmed in the idea that I wouldn't recommend this book to everybody. Like within the context, it makes sense. But I think there's a lot of people that would read it and just be like, okay, sweet. So like, I don't need to dig into my faith because there's a lot of people I've talked to that just haven't dug into their faith at all they just believe it because their spouse believes right. it, or their um their parents believe it or grandparents whatever which is good like I- i'm happy that you believe but i was talking with one person and they had like they're saying i don't think i'm doubting god it's just like and then they kind of paused realized what they were saying and then basically stopped talking because they weren't even willing to dig into whatever thoughts they had Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think this book would affirm that you don't need to. To that. To dig into the doubts. Yeah, to dig into the doubts. Which like... Because, oh, you're saying like 
if you think it doesn't matter if you have doubts or not, mm-hmm. you're not actually going to try to get rid of them. Yeah. Whereas I think like, especially in my life and your life, doubts have really pushed us into digging for answers. Not that yeah. we necessarily need those answers, but it was interesting See, though. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. For me, it was more, it's like the way I was brought up, which is you have to figure out the meaning of the the world before you die and you have to be right about it or there's a big punishment when i started doubting i went at it with the same type of i need to figure out i need to figure out if these doubts are true or you know everything like that Mm -hmm. so i went at it with the same mindset of i need to figure out what the meaning of the universe is before i die um so that was good and i feel like you can't actually do that unless you are okay with the doubt and then you can work through them but you can't work through them if you're not okay with them because you'll just shut down mm-hmm. yeah or I, I what i found like as i was reading the book i was thinking about all the things that you've told me in your own story and i was like okay yeah this is definitely probably an encouraging book in your mm-hmm. life and I don't want to be like, oh, this book really applies to Dallas. But uh, <laughs> like, I knew it soon. When I was re-listening to it, I was like, Austin's going to be reading this and being like, yeah, I, I can see how he could benefit from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he needs to be told that. <laughs> that that's not necessarily what I mean. Um, what I mean is like, well, because you talked about at Christmas how a year before that, you almost had that bridge to Terabithia moment that this guy had, which for those of you who haven't read the book, um, the bridge to Darabithia moment is this dude, he's got a PhD, teaches in a Bible college or whatever, and speaks around the world. And then he's watching this Disney movie, Bridge to Terabithia, on this airplane back home. And all his guards are down. He's exhausted. And this girl is like, I don't think God would, I don't know, damn people to hell. I think that's the words used. I don't think God would yeah, damn people so. to hell because he's too busy like taking care of the birds and the trees. And the professor just has this crisis of faith being like, maybe I'm wrong about God. And right, you would have had a similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. Watching Bridge to Terabithia. Well, I watched <laughs> that in like grade five and made it out all right. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, different things hit for different people. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, and I mean, I think like I've had moments in my life where I have serious questions and serious doubts and sometimes I lean into them and sometimes I shelve them for later. But for like this guy, he really pushes a proper understanding of what doubt is. And I really enjoyed Mm. that. Um, yeah, I have a bunch of things underlined, but okay, that's good. And I liked how, um, it was very individual because it was his personal experience and he was saying you know this is the doubts that i've had mm-hmm. and then saying you know if you have doubts you know yada yada um but he also talked about it in like a corporate level like when the church at large discovers things through archaeology or science and the church at large has to process through these doubts at the same time what is our response and I think there there are a lot of people within the church who can handle doubt, but I don't think the actual church structure is very good at it. 
Yeah. Which well, makes sense. Which it's hard to run a good structured church. <laughs> if everyone's like, yeah, I don't know what I believe. I'm going to preach for 30 minutes, but this might not be true. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that way it, it would be very difficult. Yeah, it's interesting being in BC compared to Saskatchewan and the different beliefs that people hold um, just across half the country. It's not even really half the country, I guess. Um, like, it, we're really not that far away from each other. But at the same time, yeah, I bet. like, these people hold totally different beliefs. So, uh, for example, my church did... Uh, a Sunday where they talked about aliens, which was funny. And it, it was it was a fun topic to cover. And mm-hmm. I had talked to people that I knew back in Saskatchewan, and they were immediately like, oh, like, are they going to cover the whole demonic side of demons and how demons are really a disguise sent by Satan and uh, when the rapture happens? And they got into all this. I'm like, oh, that's like, I've heard it. Some people would say that's nuts. Other people would say, oh, yeah, that's totally what I believe. That's what I think it is. Uh, all power to you, whatever you believe on that. Hold on. What are we talking about? Aliens? Yeah, yeah. In disguise. Okay, so maybe you haven't heard this. The theory <laughs> is that um, because the rapture is coming, okay, what you believe on the okay. rapture is up to you. But because the rapture is coming... Satan mm-hmm. is preparing a defense for when it happens for people to be able to explain it away. Oh, and oh so okay, gotcha. Alien sightings, UFOs, all this stuff is really <laughs> demons in disguise so that when the rapture happens, we can say, oh, the aliens took them. Um, wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a very common theory. And I was surprised <laughs> by it is in Saskatchewan maybe in bc nobody had heard of it people thought it was nuts <laughs> and we did not cover it in church because <laughs> i was talking to some of the guy, some of my friends here and they're like yeah i've never heard that that's crazy talk um that is crazy yeah whereas to like me, the, at least a you lot know of, what believe it you want but that's crazy to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't i don't agree with it but there's like christian movies put out about it and again like if that's what you want to believe sure i don't mm. necessarily believe that um and what was said by my church was hey like the galaxy's so big who's to say there's not aliens and right. honestly christians should be the first people to affirm that god could have made new life elsewhere too so it was an interesting like it it, because all life glorifies god so to think Mm. that god would only put it on earth like why couldn't he be glorified yeah my idea for a long time was like well i mean there are animals on earth that aren't humans (laughs) like there could be animals on other planets as well yeah that's not a, a theological gap here yeah all that to say just like the the belief system is vastly different just from province to province right and what i find is back in saskatchewan perhaps christians aren't ready to dive into doubts as much as they are here now that's Mm -hmm. gonna look different and i don't want to say one is better than the other but i just know like conversations i've had here are vastly different than conversations I've had in Saskatchewan regarding faith and the openness of being wrong on some things like evolution, for example, um, the story of the flood, even willing to joke about it. Like some people that I know in Saskatchewan aren't even willing to joke 
about like I was talking about with one dude and he I, I mentioned how I'm more of a Jacob than an Esau because I don't like to eat meat off the bones and stuff like that because <laughs> it grosses me out and I'd rather have soup and go to a yeah. mall and go shopping and whatnot and Esau is yeah. like a hunter and he's like oh don't you know that Jacob and Esau is just a totally made up story um just to make a point <laughs> and, and we're like just joking about it right a lot of people yeah. um I don't want to generalize I'm generalizing and I shouldn't but I don't know. I've just found it very interesting. Yeah, that's true. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. Yeah. You'd have to talk to somebody else who knows the history and the, the movements and stuff like that. I think the cities, it also depends on you're living in a big city. If you went to somewhere rural in Vancouver, I think culture there is usually different. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to go Usually to Abbotsford. less trust in like institutions and stuff like that. So yeah, because Abbotsford is technically one of the Bible belts here in Canada. Um, oh really? At, at least it was. I mean, now we're in a post-Christian culture, so it's different. But yeah, Abbotsford yeah. is considered one of the heaviest uh, population of Christians in BC. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I I was surprised too. I had no idea. But yeah. So what did you think about the chapters on, oh, the Germans? <laughs> the Germans. Uh, remind me again. Uh, I think the first one was about, oh, shoot, in what order? One of them was, oh, I'm going to screw up his name, Walter Brueggemann's hypothesis on the composition of the Torah. Oh, you're talking about the authorship and uh how the yeah. Germans okay. Is it also Germans who did the archaeology? No, I'm not sure. Well, the Germans were the leading scholars and stuff like that for a long time. I, I yeah. remember what you're talking about yeah. now. Um yeah, as I was reading that, honestly, I was just like again, I'm like, I have no idea about what to believe. And I think that brings up an interesting I, I do want to cover the German thing, but so this Peter Enns dude. I know nothing about him. Uh, mm, professor mm-hmm. of Bibl- biblical studies at Eastern University, St. David's, Pennsylvania. Okay. I don't know anything about the school. I don't know anything about his beliefs. I know that there are a lot of people that hold to this day that Moses is the author with probably a secondary author, which could have been Joshua of the Torah. Right. Because there's some stuff that are written that like, it couldn't have been Moses because Moses talked about his own death and things Dies, like that. Yeah. yeah. So, I think the old belief was that he wrote that with a tear in his eye. That's what I've heard. <laughs> okay. That's like one of those traditions that someone yeah, just added, yeah, it's, which it's is ridiculous. But uh, here's the thing. If oh, wait, wait, wait. Some... You're saying Moses okay, wrote it with sorry. a tear in his eye? Yeah. Yeah. God told him you're going to die. And so he wrote it with a tear in his eye about his own death and then died so that Moses could have written the entire thing. Wow. That's a stretch. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but here's the thing. If some guy named like Ezekiah, who nobody knows, writes the actual thing, and then it's like passed down through history, people are not going to credit him. They're just going to pick somebody who's famous in the story and credit that person. It mm-hmm. happens all the time in history. So I, yeah, I do think the more likely thing is that it was some... Probably group. It probably wasn't just one person writing these stories that come from oral tradition. 
Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's where like you and I would differ, which I think we've talked about before, but I do know like when I hear him, okay, and, mm-hmm. I, and I hear my other professors from uh, my previous schools, like they, they, they disagree on this. And I hate being oh, forced yeah, for into sure. a situation where you just trust blindly, you know? Yeah. And that's yeah. honestly what Peter Enns is kind of pushing is like, it's okay to trust blindly when you can't find the answer, which is fine. Mm-hmm. And you just choose what to believe. But like, there's a better answer than the other. And I think it's okay to work through this. I, I think what's important is that whatever it is, it doesn't shatter your faith, right? Like if it yeah, was oral yeah. tradition that was written throughout, I think he says like a thousand years. Is yeah. It, doesn't he say so, something like okay, that? So, okay, for you, if let's say there was pretty, not like unconfirmable evidence, but really, really strong evidence that the Exodus story didn't happen in literal history, would that be a faith challenge to you that the exodus story didn't happen i think Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's tough to answer because i used to think that like a seven day creation would have been a faith crisis for me but then i came to terms with it pretty quick that okay maybe it wasn't a seven days maybe it was um and i'm okay with either right like it, it didn't shatter me the interesting thing about the exodus story though is how like it's literally just a narrative. Mm-hmm. So for the Exodus story to not have happened, it would be pretty surprising on my side of things because it very much plays out. It's not like a one-time case okay, so of Job. Job is a one-time story. It's not given a lot of context. It's not like Abraham had Job. And it, it was it was very much well Moses. Well, Joseph. Not even a story. It's a poem. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> That's what I can't get. People who... Um, you know, think Job was like it's a real situation and recorded and read it as fact. Like these are what the actual guys said word for word. Mm-hmm. Who talks in like half page long poems between a conversation with friends? Like if we're on this podcast, I'm not going to start like talking in advanced Hebrew poetry and we're going to have a conversation. I don't. Um... I, I don't know enough about the book of Job to either confirm nor deny <laughs> my beliefs on it. Um, uh-huh. So I'm just going to leave what you said okay. there. And like, I, I just, I can't speak to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like after, yes. after looking Job. into Job a little more, I can definitely see what you're coming from. And I've had other conversations with it, like even regarding the names of these guys. Mm. Mm-hmm. But Yeah. Like, that's a one-off story. Um, yeah. The thing with Moses and the Exodus account is it's not. It very much flows into another story and another story and another story. So and for, you don't know when you would say, oh, this looks like real history and this looks like it could be not true. Especially because the Exodus story wasn't that long ago within the historical context of the Bible, right? The Genesis story is one thing. The, the Exodus story... Like they would, mm-hmm. they would date that for sure. So, like, do you don't yeah, you don't yeah. think the Exodus story happened? I do think the Exodus story happened. I don't think that the Exodus, like, when you go to the Bible and you read Exodus one to twenty eight, 
that that story is a word for word narrative of what happened. Do you think it's more mostly because I, if, if it did happen in that way, there would be some record of it in Egyptian records that every family lost a kid in one night. That would be enough of a news article, enough of a cultural bump. Like imagine if that happened in the United States. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't forget about that in a hundred years. That would be like one of our nations. Or I'm talking as if I'm American, but if it happened in Canada, that would be one of our nation's like biggest moments. And I'm not saying that they would use the explanation given in the Bible, but they would explain it somehow. They would say that their gods did it or that they had, you know, but you wouldn't just not write about that. And there's no record of that in Egyptian records. And when Moses is dated, there's a pretty good amount of records of what's happening. See, this is another one of those things that's like, I just don't know. Like, I don't know the history. Um, mm-hmm. I've never looked into the the Egyptian accounts. The only thing that I know is typically history is written by the winners. But Egypt, it's not like Egypt lost in a way. Like there's definitely, there definitely should still be history written by the Egyptians because the people group wasn't wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, do you think the exit, so the movie 300, okay, have you seen that? Yep. Um, Long time ago. Okay. Yeah. The movie itself is what is characterized as like an embellished story. Uh, mm-hmm. told by a narrator to encourage the troops that haven't gone out to war yet to go out to war and fight. Right. And so yeah. the story of the 300 is almost like you look at the the king and he's like a demon and you look at the soldiers and they're, or the enemy and they're like this grotesque yeah, yeah, people yeah. group. But yet these and 300, 300 against an entire army. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a story told to encourage. It's not like it's true. Um, right. Is that what you think Exodus is? What I right now, and again, this is new for me, but I could be totally wrong on this. This is just what I think. Um, I think that there were probably Hebrew slaves in Egypt who left Egypt and joined with other Semitic people in the Canaanite region. And that story was a foundational story for um, the Israelites and then when the exile happens and they're writing down their stories that's when the narrative kind of gets kicked up a whole bunch so yeah kind of like an embellished story but with real historical root and I don't think that the people who are writing it really had our standard of oh this is true this is not true they didn't really care about that it was God rescues his people. And right now we are, you know, captives of another empire. And so we're going to tell this awesome story about how God rescues his people. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about that kind of account, like, no, that's not, that's not shattering my faith. <clears throat> I don't know if I agree with your view. Mm-hmm. Like a- as of now, I know I don't, um, mm-hmm. but not enough to say that I hold to my view a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Um, you I have think, reason for why not or like why you resist it because word of mouth isn't good enough it's not that i don't trust you <laughs> but it's <a>, like <laughs> right 
like mm-hmm. th- there there are things that Sarah but says what, to me. Okay, and yes, it's just but like what? Whose word of mouth are you trusting that it, it is true? More than mine. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm just one person. But that's a valid point. That's that's actually something that if there is any listeners should seriously consider like why why is it that you push against like what is it that you heard a long time ago <laughs> can you say yeah. not to our listeners if there are any <laughs> listeners well i mean it's our first episode so. yeah yeah um but yeah like now that you say that like there have been like those creation speakers or whatever that you hear um but mm-hmm. e- even like the dead sea scrolls okay so the Dead Sea Scrolls show that scripture has been around for a long time. Yeah. So it wasn't a made-up story. Well, yeah. Very. Do you say very well preserved? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting the stuff that they have. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the Exodus story wasn't embellished by the original author. And what's also interesting is like Jesus definitely uses hyperbole in teaching parables and stuff like that. Paul uses hyperbole. Peter, James, they all use hyperbole when they're writing. And we have no issue with that. We easily agree it's hyperbole. And yet if a lot of people get freaked out, like myself when I'm saying I was nervous while reading the book, we're like, oh man, this is like not okay. Um, Like in, I was teaching the book of James to these uh, first year Bible school students the other day. And something I told them was, in some cases, it's okay to lie. And you just saw their faces like, red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> just but, drop. <laughs> yeah. But it's because Rahab in James is um, told that, or like, explained as she was righteous in what she did. In Joshua. It, well, it, it talks about it in or, James. Or in James? Oh, in okay. James it oh okay. Okay. That's um, why I brought up. Yeah. But it, the Joshua account of Rahab, yeah. And she lied to these people to keep these guys safe, right? It's within its context. But you just saw the red flags. And after I explained it, they calmed down a little bit. Um, And then I confirmed it with, you'll never come across a time where it's like, it's okay to commit adultery because of the context. It's like, no, that'll never happen. But um, yeah, it, I, I just believe my upbringing. Hmm. Which is something that's good for me to be self-aware of. Yeah. And I think, like, for me, there's, it comes from a lot of things, why we read those stories and think it has to be interpreted a certain way. I think part of it is we don't, as a cult, read a lot of fiction. And so it's harder for us to identify when something is fiction and when something isn't. And for us to have an idea of fiction that is true. So like Jesus's parables, the parable of the prodigal son, no one tries to argue for a historical case on that. No one says, well, no, Jesus says there was a man who had two sons. That's clear. There was a man who had two sons, you know, mm-hmm. but the prodigal son is a way more literal and realistic story to me than the Genesis where you have talking animals and you have trees that represent the knowledge of good and evil but there isn't an argument that people make for the historicity of that one like why why would you believe that 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 one's literal but the prodigal son isn't 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, speaking of the Genesis story as well, what blew my mind is how we interpret it. Like Peter Enns talks about it, how Satan came and deceived the woman, mm-hmm. which was Eve, mm-hmm. and he's like, nowhere does it say it was Satan. It says now yeah. the serpent was more crafty than it. Like it's never told that. I think yeah. it maybe the deceiver. God accuses no, him. It of just being? says the craftiest serpent. You're gonna be on your belly. I guess yeah, in the curses. That's what I'm wondering about is in the curse. I, I kind of have it open right now. Um, but yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't even accuse him of being. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you see you see that storyline picked up for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, like in the Old Testament, Satan is barely a character. He's in Job, but even then, I think like the I, the relationship between Satan in Genesis, or I'm using Satan, but the snake, the serpent in Genesis, and the Satan in Job that connection is an interpretation that they're the same person. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is like, again, when you look at the original word of Satan, it's not Satan. It's um, also the deceiver, isn't it? The accuser. The accuser. Yeah. Which was used in like, not just a negative sense, but um, like a courtroom sense, which is more of the Job situation. Mm Mm-hmm. God calls all his, you know, the sons of God to his courtroom and gets reports from them. And then the accuser, you know, the defense attorney says, oh, look at Job. Not we're mortal enemies and you had a war in heaven and stuff. Like, you know, yeah, none of that is in the Old Testament in clear narrative. You have to make huge interpretational leaps there. Um, mm-hmm. So, but these are the things that kind of put up red flags for me as I'm reading it because um, of where I have studied, not just um, not just growing up, right? But like I've actually gone to Bible school. I have a degree now. I'm getting my master's. And what I've studied is that like contradicts a lot of what Peter End says. So, for example, the Job account like he's talking about these words how the deceiver it's like that's not necessarily a bad thing to label as satan um what what else he talked about ecclesiastes and the author of ecclesiastes and he, he cooleth uh quileth like people even cohelet think is how cohelet okay i've heard it pronounced yeah. okay so a lot of people believe that it was um solomon that wrote mm-hmm. it so or, or the the Torah, for example, and how Peter Enns believes it was written over a long period with multiple authors, whereas uh, more conservative scholars believe that it was actually Moses, and they have reasons to believe it was Moses, right? So it, it's this thing of who do you but, believe? Okay. I, I would say that there's a historical, or like from tradition, those beliefs come. Something confronts the tradition and the conservative scholars just say there's not enough evidence to deny the tradition. There's not enough evidence to deny the tradition. Yeah. 
to change what we've believed about it. Like Moses, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of textual evidence in the book that Moses wrote it. Mm -hmm. It's just that's the tradition. And they're saying, no, there's not enough textual evidence in the book to stop believing that Moses wrote it. Yeah. And the same with Ecclesiastes, I think. Because the first line says, "King or son of David, king of Israel. Mm -hmm. So like, oh, well, that has to be Solomon. Um, whereas like the textual evidence is much different, more complex, more like you have to study it for longer. So I think that's the default is that it's Solomon and people don't want it changed. Mm -hmm. Well, and like uh, I'm looking yeah, at this from what I've learned. Oh, sorry, okay. keep going. Keep going. Um, from what I've looked into Ecclesiastes, why people don't think it was Solomon was because there are, I need to make sure that this is right because it might have been Job, but there are Persian loan words that people use in the Hebrew that came from um, Persia. And so they think, oh, okay, this must have been written during the exile when mm -hmm. Persia was in charge and like when Israelites in or after the exile. Um, when the Israelites and Persians were talking, but not Solomon. But, but, and then they would say, well, the, and the writer of it clearly wants you to be thinking in the line of Solomon. So this is a, a wisdom. So he writes that sentence, not thinking everybody's going to think I'm Solomon because everybody knows he isn't. It's just from, you know, 2000 years later. That's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yes, there are a lot scholars who still say it was solid yeah and even things like um digging into so he, he referenced psalm 89 um talking about how it was he he seems to change the date i felt on the the classic like david is the author or whoever i think he says 500 years after something i can't remember i i should have pulled up the quote but th these these are my issues is like i don't know if i agree with your decisions on who the authors are which doesn't greatly right. impact the writing necessarily but i don't know it does yeah i see what you mean i see what you mean um you're saying like his interpretation is kind of based off the idea that it wasn't david but you think it is David. Yeah. I don't think it yeah. necessarily discounts the book, but it does. Like, I, I think just because we're talking about the book, it's worth bringing up that I do think he's wrong on some of these things. Um, granted, I don't have as much schooling or life experience as this guy, but that doesn't mean mm -hmm. that he's right. Yeah, no, that's true. Um. I think he does follow this, and I I need to say this the right way, or else it'll be confusing. He does follow the current biblical scholarly ideas in that vein. And there is another vein of biblical scholarship that does hold to liter literalism, that's the one that you would be schooled in. Um, but I think the mainstream biblical scholars he'd hold he'd like his opinion agrees with most of them yeah the other interesting thing with that statement 
is to say that most scholars agree. Like if most scholars agree, they're all going to be out of a job. So they have to disagree with each other to keep their jobs. Right? Um, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of ironic. Uh, I think they agree about some core things and then disagree about smaller things to keep their jobs. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But like when it, scholarship is also reputation, right? Like this scholar mm-hmm. believes this and I'm going to follow what he believes because he's created what I think is the right interpretation of scripture or interpretation of whatever it is that they're uh studying so scholars like i I heard one account of this guy getting up and writing a paper on why um i think it was ezekiel is gay right and he he, apparently because again i haven't studied the original language enough apparently he totally misinterpreted it but he did it so that he could get a reaction so that he could create a name for himself so that he could start to get some public attention which when scholars are doing yeah. these things, it's like, I don't know who to trust anymore. And the the one thing that I took away from that is Peter ends this right, like <laughs> where you you have to sit in that doubt and be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. With with scholars, you get published if you have something new. You, you don't get published if you're like, yeah, what we've always thought was right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's not, it's not going <clears> to, <throat> tickle people's feathers so there is a lot of incentive to challenge old beliefs in scholarship Mm -hmm. um but some some of the like the the theories about how the torah was written and how the old testament was written those have been around for 200 years now and have been refined and have been added on and changed and modified um and so it would be hard for me to not trust that because I've seen, you know, the one guy, the one person who first came up with the idea that the Torah was written with like four different sources, a lot of his actual work has been revised, not revised, but isn't believed word for word because the theory has went through a lot more criticism, but the idea behind it has stuck because it really didn't match up with, the writing mm-hmm. you know that you get like the t- two um creation stories and you get the two flood stories with different numbers and you get you know like all those things that say okay well these come from different sources they're not just repetition for repetition's sake mm-hmm. but yeah. yeah i do see you can't just say well it's from a scholar so i'll believe it because you can find a different scholar who will disagree with you mm-hmm yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so to change the topic just a little bit, maybe make it a little more personal. Um, sure. On page 158 of the actual book, because you listen to the audiobook, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, he talks about doubt, and I think this is an interesting quote, so I'm just going to read it. Doubt tears down the castle walls we have built with the false security and permanence they give and and forces us outside to walk a lonely, trying, yet cleansing road. In those times, it definitely feels like God is against us, far away or absent altogether. But what if the darkness is actually a moment of God's presence that seems like absence, a gift of God to help us grow up out of our little ideas of God? Um... I, th- I think that was a really interesting quote and a good view of doubt. Mm. How does that kind of speak into your own life of doubt? 
I think for for me, I had a lot of faith in Christian tradition, and I had a lot of faith in the Bible, but I didn't really have a lot of faith in God himself. Mm. And so I had to lose my faith in Christian tradition and lose my faith in the Bible so that I could see what was left and and then start building trust in God himself. Like right now, I would say, even if the Bible was found to be completely fabricated, we found the guy who in the middle of like the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Persian war, who's like, I wrote the entire thing. Like, these are my documents. These are my fake scripts and all that. Mm-hmm. I would still believe in God. I would still trust him. I would still have like ideas about who I think he is. Where I think a lot of other people, their faith is, their faith in God is really faith in the Bible and then the Bible tells them who God is. Yeah, that's fascinating because that would freak out a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Because... And I mean for for rightful reasons. They'd probably have to go through the same experience of walking through the dark and feeling abandoned and and all that. But there is a way through that you can have faith in God that isn't predicated on other stuff. Mm-hmm. The I people think... who wrote the Bible didn't have the Bible. And they believed in God. They trusted God. Right. That's a, that's a very interesting point as well. Because their understanding of God would have been very small. Especially like if you take all the beginning stories in the Bible as literal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or even or even wrong, you know? Like God never lectures Abraham on his qualities or his <laughs> divinity or like you know, what type of God he is, and I'm omniscient and omnipresent. We assume that Abraham had all those beliefs, but he probably didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, he may have thought that the God who spoke to him was just one of the many gods, and he's like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll go with this one. That's totally fine. Abraham could have been wrong, but his faith was there. And so, yeah, Christians can be wrong, but their faith is there. I hope. Yeah, it's just like this is again why Peter ends freaked me out a bit is it seems to step into a bit of a dangerous territory of how do you define God if you're going to push against um the Bible. Well, maybe Peter ends isn't pushing against the Bible as much as maybe like this conversation here. But mm-hmm. like yeah, probably not. What do you do? If you push against the Bible, how do you define God? Then you're just kind of you, following. You say, here's here's the answer to that. You say, if you have ever defined God, you've defined a God in your mind, not the real one. I, I agree with that. But do you not think that there is a true God? Like, yeah, but I don't think he can be defined. Mm-hmm. But the Christian faith would very much say, like, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, right? Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So the Bible defines it at least to the point of you have to follow Jesus. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I I see what you mean, but that verse... That verse could have a lot of different meanings. If if you say no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, 
does that mean that through Jesus, does that mean they have to willingly through Jesus? Does that mean they have to be knowledge, like knowingly through Jesus? Like a lot of people in, I think the Eastern church would say, yes, God has reconciled the entire world through Jesus, but that doesn't mean they're all Christians. You're saying like a universalism <clears throat> standpoint. Yeah, like the idea that, that Jesus' death reconciled humanity to the entire world. Like in, in Romans when he says, through one man's sin, all have sinned. Through one man uh, to bring life, all will bring, will have life. Or all men. Um, that idea that, you know, you didn't need to know about Adam to inherit Adam's sin. You didn't need to like make a choice and say a prayer. Oh, I'm going to follow Adam's sin to get it. It just happened. And so you can make the argument that, yeah, everyone will be saved through Jesus, but that doesn't mean they're all Christians. Hmm. Or, oh, uh, I'm going to do this right. I hope in Colossians one fifteen. Um, it does the Christ hymn, talks about who Christ is, and in 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. I don't know how to, like, I don't have views on universalism or not, but I don't know how to interpret that in a God actually isn't going to reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven and earth. Like a part of me wants to just look at something and be like, well, is it on heaven? No. Is it on earth? Yes. Well, the Bible says God will reconcile it. Mm -hmm. It just calls into question a lot of other passages in scripture, like the call to go to make disciples. If it is a sure. universalism thing. But that's saying that we would only want to make disciples if we can save people from hell, which is a big assumption. I, I still think listening to the teaching of Jesus on earth is a good thing, whether they get saved or not at the end, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's about getting heaven <laughs> and avoiding hell as much as it's about getting relationship with right. Jesus. And there are definitely benefits to having a reconciled relationship with God right now on earth. I think the Bible is very clear about that. It's whether that's the final stand of everyone. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know. I like Jesus in Mark does not preach about himself at all. And every time he does something, he says, don't tell anybody. And I can't get over the fact that if it's really, you need to have faith in Jesus. Why would why would why would Jesus come and try to keep it a secret that he is sent from God? Mm -hmm. If you really you're going to get saved by putting your faith in Jesus, and then Jesus comes and you know your neighbor gets healed and he doesn't tell you about it because Jesus made him swear he wasn't going to. I mean, usually they didn't listen, but that's good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like why what what would Jesus' motivation be for trying to keep his identity a secret until he dies? 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I've never known how to explain those passages as to um, why Jesus would want to keep it a secret. Because, yeah, that's not our... For us, it's like, tell everybody we can, right? And there's an urgency behind it. And there's you don't know if that's the last time you're going to see somebody. And this is their only chance to see. These are people who not just could hear about Jesus, but could talk to him. <laughs> and Jesus decides, no, I'm going to stick to my mission. But that it didn't seem, it didn't seem all that important to the people, at least in the synoptic gospels. Because in John, he does preach a lot about himself. Um, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it does not seem that important to his mission that people believe in him along Um, so what about, are you still there? Yep. Oh, okay. Um, like there, I, I feel like there's still a bunch of verses that would push back against. There are. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, but here's the thing. Like I have you... a bunch that I could read. I don't know if we yeah. care to get into it, but the thing for me is like, it's your choice whether to interpret those verses through the lens of colossians 115 in the end god will reconcile everything to himself or to interpret colossians 115 against those verses mm -hmm. there's no guidebook that says this one trumps this one that's just you know and there are there are other ones um in romans talks about how adam's sin spreads to all men and christ's resurrection is stronger and spreads that all may be saved um in Ephesians, there's a similar poem that says he's reconciling all things to himself. So there are, and in the first Corinthians, I think maybe second, um, there are verses that make it at least sound like God's going to reconcile everything. And there are hundred percent verses that make it sound like absolutely not. He's not going to It's just, which one do you let interpret the other? Mm-hmm. Or do you just say, well, maybe they don't have to agree with each other, but I don't think anybody's ready for that. Yeah. It's just, it is interesting because like reconciliation is bringing a harmony mm -hmm. is what it is. Bring harmony in all things is basically what he's saying. But then at the same time, it's like, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or um, John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Like it, It's interesting how other verses push back. And so you're right. right. Like what verse trumps the other? And ultimately, usually it's explained by, no, there's actually a good understanding between both verses. But when we read it ourselves and just look at it as it is, it's like, okay, what what is right what is wrong yeah and, and whatever think... arguments are told aren't necessarily the best arguments either like what like what i'm saying is um if somebody talks about colossians and like a couple of verses i just read and they try to explain them it's not like their explanation isn't going to be the right answer necessarily right yeah 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 because again so, it's yeah, just another guy's have... opinion of how I think, you know, there's no other name under heaven which people can be saved. 
I have an idea of how to explain that one under sort of a universalist idea. But it's not a it's not as it's not as clear of an understanding of that verse. If I read that verse alone, I would say, Oh, okay, well this is kind of clear. You know? And I think I think a lot of it comes from the idea that we have to we believe that the Bible is one text with one point. And so when there do seem to be differences, you know, it makes sense maybe that John had a different theology than Paul. But we think that the Bible has one theology. Which I, yeah, I do think the Bible has one theology. I mean, take so James versus Paul and their writings. Like Martin Luther's big issue was they seem to teach different things. Faith by works or faith yeah. without works. But I believe yeah. they complement each other. Um, and I think yeah. it'd be this a similar argument diving into these verses. Um, but again, like we can splice all these things. I was more curious as to like how your doubt strengthened your faith. Well, or did it? We'll see. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm not in a spot to say. It did, and now it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say, like, I am, I'm in a spot that became comfortable with doubt, and now I am rebuilding beliefs. But and and you know, I wouldn't have been able to do that without going through the process. But it's not like a, a one-time thing, you know. Mm-hmm. What I thought was interesting, do you remember when um, Mother Teresa talked about clarity in the book? Yes, yeah, yeah. Basically, like, we want clarity. And she says, I'm not going to pray for clarity for you. This guy I want clarity. I'm, like, I'm not going to pray for clarity for you because then you're not going to trust God. Then you're going to have all the answers. And there needs to be, like, a fog. She doesn't say this part, but she's like, there needs to be a fog that you sit in so that you actually mm. trust God. Yeah, yeah. Which is, oh, yeah. She's like, I'm going to pray that you trust God, not mm-hmm. pray for clarity. Yeah. Which is a little infuriating. <laughs> right? But, I mean, you know, biblically, I think, and this is just my personal vendetta, but I think God could have been way more clear and chooses not to be. Yeah, you've you've said that a lot to me, and I 100% agree with it. So, yeah, I guess there is some something behind that idea as infuriating as it is so do you agree with the interpretation of doubt that peter gives like doubt is a good thing for us to sit in i think so i i do i think it's it's a part of yeah i mean long term it might not be good Mm -hmm. um but at least short term being able to sit in it because once you can sit in doubt then your beliefs are pretty not your beliefs your beliefs are subject to criticism but your faith is strong because you're fine sitting in doubt and trusting so whether whatever happens in the future whether i reconstruct my beliefs and then something else happens i'll have experience being in doubt Mm-hmm. Because you don't know. That's what he also says: is you don't know when it's coming. 
you don't know when your crisis of faith is going to hit you. And so if you're not prepared to to live in doubt for a little bit, yeah, I don't think you're going to handle it too well. Because I didn't. So after saying that, <clears throat> what do you think? Okay, pretend that you've come up to me and you say, hey, every mm-hmm. sermon needs to be gospel-centered. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not a sermon and it needs to have Jesus in it. And I sit and okay. I think about it. I'm like, you know what? I think you're wrong. You okay. pose some good <laughs> arguments, I suppose, but and I'm doubting a bit, but I'm going to trust God that this is right, that and Dallas is wrong. Wait, you go, you heard from God that it's right? Well, I'm going to trust what I grew up with, right? Like this is Okay. Well, that's different. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's what I'm saying about this being a dangerous book. Or not a dangerous book, but like like I, I don't think he spells out the context well enough because I think a lot of people would hear that and be like, "Okay, so whatever I believe is fine because I'm okay to sit in like being questioned and whatnot." Like I don't know if it really encourages the growth and maybe I'm just applying it to too much. Mm. But you know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? I or, think so. I think the doubts that he's talking about are more um, like mine. Not like I have a specific doubt about this specific belief. Mm-hmm. It's more like I don't know if I can still be a Christian if I'm not sure that it's true. Mm-hmm. I think I think those are the ones that he's speaking more to so yeah in a situation like that just do some research and come up with an opinion and you know like be like yeah these are books these are sermons you know this is why i believe i believe Mm -hmm. i don't think you have to sit in oh maybe i'm doing my sermons wrong maybe i you know like think about it but i don't think that's that's really that important to make sure you sit in the doubt for you know Mm -hmm. like I, i know in my own life I mean, if I had to put labels, I would have been more of an Arminianist. Then I swapped to more of a Calvinist. Um, and if, yeah. But I remember being in that process thinking that if God held to like a Calvinistic view of theology, mm-hmm. he would be a monster. Like I think those are my exact yeah. words to you. Yeah. And, or that you wouldn't be a Christian. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I said that as well. Yeah. And yeah. now... And look where we are. <laughs> look what, yeah. And it's just interesting how actually that doubt and sitting in it for a while and struggling through it made me come to a different understanding of who God was. Mm-hmm. Uh, less of a full understanding and being okay with that. And then like recognizing that my beliefs aren't always going to be right. And I think yeah. that's definitely a good takeaway from the book is you have to be open to being wrong. Yeah, and I think there's there's not a lot of that. No, I think in... a lot of people are open to you being wrong or me being wrong, but not themselves <laughs> yes. being wrong, right? Like even, yeah. Like, yeah. Or even I would just, like, I now am really hesitant to say statements about who God is. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm comfortable saying statements about who I think God isn't. Like, that's what all the early theologians did is, like, by negation 
God is not this, God is not this, because they were so concerned about saying something about who God is that was wrong. Um, and that type of idea does resonate with me, because I don't, like, for me to say I know that the God of the universe is like this, it's like, well, do I know that? I have beliefs about it, but I don't know it. Mm-hmm. I have beliefs that the Bible <clears throat> is a good text to go to to understand who God is. I do believe that, but I don't know. So right. I, yeah, I think we need to be a little less, this is the way it is. And then when we're wrong, we can change it. And then we get, oh, no, now this is the way it is. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting when, like, theologically we want to put God in a box, but then we have different experiences. And you put yeah. those experiences through your, ren- your lens of your theological beliefs and say, well, it doesn't line up with my theological beliefs. So, yeah. Like, I was listening to somebody who um, had some criticisms about a church. And they said it was like there's a lot of personal interpretation of scripture. Mm. And I was like, you don't get to just read scripture and say, this is my theology. And mine is just the Bible and everybody else's is a personal interpretation. Like everyone's interpretation is a personal interpretation. Mm -hmm. Even if it agrees with other people, it's still like you are still bringing your assumptions your culture, your way of doing theology to it. Mm-hmm. And there's no there's no way around that. So, yeah, we need to be comfortable with the idea that everything is an interpretation. And there are better ones and worse ones, but it is still interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the spectrum of those that will be saved, speaking from a non-universalist standpoint, just regarding mm-hmm. the earlier... Uh, conversation um i think it's gonna be much broader than we think yeah right like what about okay now this is just pushing on you because again i don't have these ideas (laughs) so so what do you think about um what do you think is the requirement then if you're saying it's broader than what we think what do you think if you just had to guess what do you think the spectrum includes well i think it's fairly obvious you have to be a five-point calvinist uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have to go to my denomination yeah in, in this time period. yeah yeah in this time period that's funny yeah. um the spectrum man i think you do have to believe and have a trust in jesus specifically i really do so anybody before jesus are they exempt yeah. from that? Moses isn't in heaven. He didn't make the cut, neither did David. What um, about like people in Peru? <laughs> I think you have to believe. Okay, let's broaden it a little bit. You have to believe in the biblical God. I don't think. Because like that, that's honestly, that's in the biblical God. Yeah. So do you have to have the Bible to do that? Well, no because so you have to believe in god that matches the biblical god 
Okay, now now you're gonna Without the twist bump. my words here. Okay, <laughs> hold on. Let me let me explain a little bit uh-huh. more. Yeah. Okay. I am curious. I think you have to believe in the biblical God. I think He can show up in different ways. I think He can reveal Himself in visions. I don't think you need to have a super broad understanding of theology. Um, and what I struggle with is the concept that there were people groups that believed in a God, but he may have not been the right God. And so they weren't saved in history. Right. You so have a problem I, with that? I have a, I have a huge problem with that. And that's okay. because it pushes against my understanding of an all loving God. Right. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean like, I know you and I have talked about this before, but where I rest is that God is God and he gets to do what he wants. And so I think we real, especially in the 21st century North American culture, we like to paint God with a brush that says he's all loving. So he has to save everybody. He has to have revealed himself in other ways. And for me, I want that, but I rest in that God is all loving but he's also just in doing whatever he wants because he's God, right? Like Francis Chan said, if Francis Chan is an Asian dude for anybody that's listening, because uh, <laughs> of what I'm about to say, uh, Francis Chan himself said that if all Asian men have to stand on their head for the rest of their life, he's going to do it or he's going to try to do it because God is God and who am I to argue with him? Um, and that's where I sit. But that doesn't mean that I don't struggle with the idea that let's say Moses, okay. During Moses's time, uh, they were the chosen people of God. And yet halfway around the world, there were people that never encountered God died, went to hell, never had an opportunity, right? People today have opportunities because of technology and, um, the advancement of translations of scripture and stuff like that. People have opportunity today. People didn't yeah. have opportunity back then. And so those are the things I struggle with. But um, I do think you need to have trust in the biblical God. And that's hmm. and an understanding that you need to be saved. Like, I don't think you can just say, I believe in God, but I'm perfect. Right. I think you need to understand that God needs God needs to save you from something. I'm trying to I'm trying to make it as basic as possible because I'm thinking of somebody that was like revealed to this revealed this in a vision because I know a lot of even conservative Christians will say, "Oh no, people can get visions from God and that's how they can believe around the world and there's accounts of that." Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm trying to think of what that looks like. So, I'm verbally processing here. So, if I'm saying something terrible, <laughs> um yeah so someone like before europeans came to canada and some of the first nations belief structures that had other spirits had um very act like very different world different creation story different all that Mm -hmm. but had trust in the goodness of the creator is that enough I don't know. 
I don't, I don't think so. Hmm. Which I want to say very gently, <laughs> right? Like to anybody yeah. um, when talking about stuff like that, because yeah, like it's such a difficult conversation. But yet when we look at scripture, like God has a history of choosing people, right? Like the whole predestination yeah. and election but here's conversation. The thing. Here's what I, what I have read about God's choosing people is generally he chooses people for the benefit of everybody else, right? He chooses Abraham's nation to be to bless the entire world to bless the nations of the world mm -hmm. and my perspective on that before was like yeah through abraham is going to come jesus and some people of the entire world are going to follow jesus mm -hmm. and that's him blessing the entire world through abraham but now my idea is what if god had this plan to the whole jesus thing through Abraham's people to bless literally the entire world, whether they knew it or not. Like, why do you have to know and be on board for God to bless you? I just like, I can see mm -hmm. there are some parts in scripture that do lend themselves to that, but then come on, like, I, I, God would need to have had to done a better job <laughs> started earlier. Like, you know, there's generations and generations and generations of people who never had the chance and only in the past like 100 years, 200 years that they actually know, not just know enough to believe, but know even that there is an option to believe. And that's like, yeah, you said people today now have the ability to know about God through technology, through whatever. That's true. But they will probably have the same gut instincts that you have when confronted with beliefs that are different than theirs, that there's just say, well, I'm going to trust all I was brought up because I don't know. Like, why would I just pick one religion and be like, yeah, I think this one's true now. I'm going to follow it. Mm -hmm. Well, like for them to make that choice. <sighs> a lot of where I sit though is rooted on the historical evidence for the new testament um and the arguments that go with it so you got apologetic arguments and whatnot but just uh, without getting into it because it, there's a lot to get into but that's where a lot of what i believe is rooted on so it's not just that i was raised as a christian so that's why i'm a christian right um, but you only researched that because you were raised a christian you have probably, mm -hmm. I would just, I would say you probably spent more time researching the historical credibility of the New Testament than you did the Hindu Vedas. Yes, 100%. So the Hindu who has spent way more time researching the historical reliability of the Hindu Vedas and just hears about the New Testament, hears that some people believe it's historically accurate and some people don't, is not going to look into it like you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's another great point. And that's where it's like that whole thing of sitting in faith and which is kind of a cop-out answer. Mm -hmm. But yet 
the answer that again in this book Peter Ens really pushes. Yeah, it's it in doubt. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Like these are these are questions that have pushed me deeper into schooling. I mean, before I even went into this master's program, I told you one of the reasons I want to go to this is to find more answers for a lot of the questions I have. And you are still you're still cut out. I'm still cut out. <laughs> okay, now you're good. Oh, I can hear that. Oh, okay. Um, I was just saying that I, I had said it before, but the reason I went into schooling is to find answers for the questions that I have. Like one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. honestly, I should just sit down and ask some people these questions and see what they say too, because there's not much you and I can do in this echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. For me, when it when we were talking about just people, like, do they actually have people who know? Okay, so I have a friend who is not a Christian. And we've talked for years and years and years sometimes when but he, he's not interested at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and his idea, he said, like, I'm not going to just pick a religion and say, I think this is true. If there is a God and really my beliefs like his his basic idea was like god never explained to me the deal you know it would be unfair for him to be like oh actually you were being judged on all things and you had the wrong beliefs at the end and you're going to hell if god never explained to him this is what you need to do and and so the internal voice in my head is like well he did it's just in the Bible, mm-hmm. but he doesn't trust them. Like, you know, God never explained to him. You have to listen to the Bible. So why would he choose that one instead of the Quran? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have an answer. I was like, yeah, you know, that's, that's fair. However, a lot of it, I think could be argued that Christianity is the only one that really pushes relationship with God. Sure. But then that takes the assumption that, you need that the relationship point is the go-to or is the right one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's a valid argument too, is like you could get up to it. It's, Oh, pl- no, somebody's paradox or, or mm, I think theorem. It's basically Pascal. Pascal's theory wager Pascal's wager. <laughs> Pascal's wager, which is, um, I do believe, and I'm right. I go to heaven. I don't believe, and I'm right. There's nothingness. I do mm-hmm. believe, and I'm wrong. I'm like I'm still better off. And it's the idea that yeah, yeah. being a but Christian, that only works within the Christian framework. Oh yeah, because. <laughs> Yeah. I the Muslim believe... uses the Muslim Pascal's wager and says, no, I'm not going to go to Christianity, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, because, it, it, yeah, it only works because I do believe and I'm wrong and it's something else. That's not an option in uh, in his theory or his wager or whatever. Yeah, but exactly. for the most part, Which it's pretty sense. safe. Um, but, like, I find it interesting. Somebody that takes their faith seriously don't you think they'd question what it is they believe and then go to the history on it so like the quran like the quran is 
written after the Bible, it's it's a newer text. Like it, it still raises a ton of the same doubts. And um, I mean, honestly, I haven't researched it that much. So I, what I've researched is pretty vague, but it contradicts mm-hmm. itself, right? There, there are issues with the Quran that you would hope that people could just say, oh, well, this is wrong. Yeah, but okay. Yes. But yet there are still people there that probably are. Them. Yeah. But I, <laughs> if people do the same type of uh, mental gymnastics that they do with the Bible, the contradictions in the Quran are probably not that difficult. Like if, if you can solve the contradictions in the Bible, you can solve the contradictions in the Quran. Mm-hmm. Because you just, well, all you have to do is just say, I believe that it's true no matter what. And whatever, however unreasonable the answer to make both of those true no matter what is, that's what you believe. That's what people do with the Bible. Mm-hmm. So an easy contradiction, you just yeah, smash them together, say they both happened. I think those are the only type in the Quran. Like the, you know, Judas says this in one part and then Judas dies in the other one. You just smash them together and say both are true. They're just describing different things. Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah, I think if you want to say that the word of God can have no contradictions, then I'm not sure the Bible passes that standard either. I think the argument is the word of God can have no contradictions and our finite minds can't understand what's really going on. I think that's the argument that's given. Sure. For both the Christian and the Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. But, so how is a Muslim who's serious about their faith going to realize Islam is wrong? Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. I would say, yeah, I don't think... Like, it all comes down to... You will have a foundational belief that cannot have other beliefs to inform it or else it's not a foundational belief. So if you say the Bible is the foundation of all my truth, and I say, well, why is the Bible the foundation for all your truth? If you look anywhere else, if you look at history, if you look at archaeology, if you look at anywhere else, then that's not the foundation of your truth. The foundation is history. And then from history comes the Bible, and then the Bible comes the beliefs. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and I know this isn't a good enough argument because like other people say they have God experiences, but even Peter Enns uh, pushes the like God moments that you've had in your life and that you should trust those yeah. when you're going through doubts. And for me... But the same thing can be said about those. If you say your experiences are the foundation and I say, well, why would you trust your experience? If you give a rational reason, then experience is no longer your foundation. Like, at, at some point, you just kind of set your foot down and say, this is circular, but I believe it. And well, for the Muslim, it's the Quran is the word of God. I don't think saying having archaeological evidence to back up the Bible means that the archaeological evidence is the foundation, right? Like, I believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? Well, because I found it to be true in my life. And then you speak of God moments or even how history itself has also backed up the Bible, but it's still 
comes to the Bible. Yeah, but then the Bible isn't the foundation. Well, it's a circular argument. Yeah, it's always circular. Any type of foundation this is how we argument, know stuff. Yeah, any type of foundation is always circular. Because if you try to use the foundation to support the foundation, it's circular. If you go away from the foundation to try to support the foundation, it's not the foundation anymore. Mm-hmm. So but... I know a lot of people who say foundationally, like the atheist, like oh empirical science is my foundation you can't give an argument that isn't empirical science to support it and still have that as your foundation it's just everybody has these little circles of logic Mm -hmm. at the very crux of their belief and i to me it's like it's unreasonable for god to say yeah you have to know which circle is right and yet what if god does say that i would say you're unreasonable He'll still do it, but I'll say that's unreasonable. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I feel <laughs> like I feel like a lot of people in the Bible would have also like um, people calling out in Psalms, right, and saying like, "Why have you left me?" Um, Jesus crying out, "God, why have you forsaken me?" Like this seems unfair, um, right? Like I, <laughs> I think it's the idea that God is God and God's going to do what God does. Right. And I don't, I, in, that's the thing. I don't think God was mad at those people who called God unfair. Well, why would it be in the Bible if, if he really didn't want his people to speak like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think God can handle me saying you're unreasonable if that's what it actually is. Yeah. I think God can handle a lot more than we throw at him. And I think typically our prayer life is that of things we think we should say when in reality i think god wants us to say what we really think because that's what relationship really is to a certain extent yeah at some point if let's say the the orthodox view that we grew up with is true fully correct anybody who doesn't say the sinner's prayer goes to hell mm-hmm. um i'm going to complain about that for the first you know, a couple thousand years of heaven. <laughs> Say, no, <laughs> please, like, stop. You can't do this. Either, I mean, that's a hyperbole because mm-hmm. I'm not sure who the me there would be, if I'd be changed, if I'd have different perspective, if it all makes sense. But me in my current state would mm-hmm. say, no, I'd rather go to hell and save those people, mm-hmm. which is a, I... a, a Christ-like thing approach to it you know i have well i think that's whole that's interpreting a view of god that you've just me want me going to save the people of hell as a christ like because i think you're discounting following the example of christ i think you're discounting um christ also saying depart from me you workers of lawlessness or get behind me satan or like christ clearly had a view of evil and that evil can't be around him or not around him but that it has no place with him on a on an intimate level became sin for us carried sin in his body well that's paying the ultimate price but right what i'm saying is there is still a separation like 
the sacrifice was a sacrifice. It wasn't a, this is a great option. Yeah, I mean, like, like for... What? Sorry, go ahead. For someone to say, yeah, I'd prefer to sacrifice myself to try to save the people in hell is following after Christ's example of what, you know, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Mm -hmm. Paul says the same thing about how he wishes he could give up his salvation to give it to others. Exactly. Yeah. I 100% agree. And I have an emotional issue with it that like that this is what it could be but that doesn't mean i have a logical issue with it like i can logically come to terms with whatever god decides to do it's emotionally then like that seems unfair i mean the only logical part of it is that the bible says god is love and so either i have to reinterpret what love means or i have to reinterpret what i think god would do being love I don't have a framework for saying God is love and has the vast majority of humans going to hell. Mm -hmm. So I would need to recreate what I think love is, which then, I mean, does that statement mean anything? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that is also kind of the issue is how you can get yourself into these circles of defining what love is and then like there are definitions and you don't get to de decide on the definitions of words right. that are used like you have to go to those definitions like i don't think that's up sure. for interpretation god is I mean. love my the definition of love i don't think fits in a framework where god designs a universe where 90 percent of the people in it are tormented for eternity sentiently aware of it like that doesn't fit the definition of love so either i have to go and redefine love against the using definition that we use when we use that word or i logically say maybe we're misinterpreting what we think god's gonna do mm -hmm. yeah I think a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's yeah. Cool. Keep it up. <laughs> you're going for your master's, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're a real smart dude, eh? Just um, write that on your face. <laughs> I think a lot of things. <laughs> oh, man. No. What did um, you say? Yeah. Honestly... There, there's a whole lot of different ways to look at Christianity and the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And for us, we can't have the answers. And I think what Peter's point is within the context of Christianity is even if you view God like this, don't try to logic your way out of it as much as allow God to push you into a deeper understanding of him right like where you are and where i am isn't where we want to be in 10 years and our understanding of god should grow not to a point where we think we understand him but where we're able to see 
through the fog a little a little easier be like okay god is growing me in a deeper understanding of what his love is or what his judgment is or because scripture doesn't just define god as god is love that is one way it defines god but elsewhere it'll talk about how god has to judge or god has to so yeah i'm trying to think of also how we can wrap this up here because we've been going for over an hour and a half mm, wow yeah time flies yeah time flies when you're having fun arguing <laughs> <laughs> for me at least <laughs> no i'm i i always oh. enjoy arguing <laughs> um yeah i think that's true i think the book is it is an invitation i would say if you are doubting it's probably a good read Mm-hmm. and like it's having if you're doubting and you're not okay with it like it's having psychological damage if you're not dealing with it well if it's affecting your life and you feel like fear about it and all that i think it could be a good read if you if you have a hundred percent certainty in your faith and have never questioned it i think it's also a good read because me personally, I don't think we should have that level of, of certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I can see what you mean about it being an excuse to just not look for answers and not to do research, not to try to learn things and, and see God, God clear. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll help us give grace to those that don't believe what we believe right like yeah i don't look at what you believe to what i believe and say either of one is 100 percent right i think there are issues we each have and i'm willing to say that but this book definitely helped me see oh you know what like there is grace to give and i'm probably wrong on a lot more than i think i'm wrong like I give myself a lot of grace and be like, I'm probably wrong about this and this and this, but there are things that I don't even realize that I may be wrong about that I probably am. Yeah. No, you don't know that you don't know things. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you're ignorant of what you're ignorant. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Alrighty. I think, I think it sparked probably an interesting conversation to continue. Is really yeah. There's, is. there were a lot of, um, offshoots that we could follow for a long time <laughs> yeah and a lot of areas of the book that I, like i i took notes and stuff and i didn't even get to oh, any wow. of it you really so was it a good christmas present it was a good christmas present it took me away from my school so it's a decent christmas present <laughs> took away from what it took me away from my school oh <laughs> yeah so no, that's good <laughs> yeah i hope yeah but Anyways, not like you're stressing out. I need to finish this book. <laughs> it was a gift. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, anyways, thanks. Uh, thanks for you, you for listening. Thank you for listening. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.